The Water Values Podcast, Session 114. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resource, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGibbs. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGibsey and thanks for joining me. We've got a great show for you today. We have Todd Reeve of the Bonneville Environmental Foundation. Uh, he's going to do uh, a great job explaining the work of the Bonneville Environmental Foundation. I think he's really got an interesting perspective uh, coming from the NGO side in terms of what will make uh, uh, a business or a company invest in a water restoration project. And I think you're, I, I think it's going to make sense to you, but I think you might be surprised by some of his answers. Uh, I learned a tremendous amount uh, from Todd about uh, how this space works. Uh, the Bonneville Environmental F uh, Foundation has pioneered the concept of a water restoration certificate, which uh, Todd will explain. And I, th I think this is really uh, an interesting space to be in right now. And uh, I'm just so grateful that, that Todd was able to spend some time with us talking about the uh, Bonneville Environmental Foundation and its work and, and all the cool projects they got going on. But in any event, as usual, a little bit of housekeeping before we start. First off, thank you for all the great ratings and reviews. I uh, got a couple more ratings this week and uh, reviews. We have one from McNicopolis, uh, which is a five-star rating. Thank you very much. Uh, and it says, great podcast. I was searching for some water podcasts on my flight back from the U.S. Green Building Conference and so lucky to stumble on this. I listened to three episodes straight and love the variety and informative nature of the show. I manage water sustainability programs for a Fortune 500 company and I've been wanting to brush up on my knowledge of water policy and innovation and very glad to find this. We'll definitely be adding to my favorites and sharing with my networks. Well, thank you so much, McNicopolis. Really appreciate that, um, uh, especially the, your, your glowing review. Uh, uh, greatly appreciated. Uh, the next is by Maxie A. Uh, she, and she says, or the, Maxie A says, good content, great effort, five stars. As a current environmental engineering master's student, I find this podcast very informative. The world of water is expansive. And Dave does a great job at bringing in ideas and opinions from across the board. I sincerely appreciate the effort and encourage you to keep up the excellent work. She does say, although uh, she says, my only constructive note is that I would appreciate more bite-sized shows in the 15 to 25 minute length uh, period as that fits better into her commute. Um, well, you know, so I've, I've, I've received a request for more bite-sized episodes. I've received requests for longer, more in-depth episodes. So uh, maybe I'm, I'm kind of uh, at that Aristotelian mean right in the middle. I wish I could, you know, serve everyone's interest, but, you know, I, I think we're, we're uh, doing the best we can to to meet what the listeners want. So uh, it, it, the the range we're in right now is the range we're in. So uh, it seems to work for for most folks. So, but I Maxie, I really appreciate the five star rating and the great review. Uh, we're going to do our best here to uh, continue to provide you with great content about interesting perspectives and stories in the water industry. Uh, and if you like the podcast and you like uh, hearing about those stories and you haven't donated yet, please consider donating because there are expenses associated with the podcast and your donation simply helps defray those. Any uh, donation you can make, again, in any denomination uh, is greatly appreciated. So with that, uh, let's get on with the show. Oh, one more thing, one more thing. Um, so last week we had Blue, uh, Bluefield Research's Reese Tisdale on to talk about the business of water and uh, a lot of the M&A activity. Uh, Bluefield is... 
uh, offerings, uh, their premium content there. You can get uh, a free trial subscription. Uh, you go to their website, and in the little uh, promo code box, you put in water values. You put in water values in the Bluefield Research promo code uh, box, and you can get free access to all their great content. So if you haven't checked out Bluefield Research, go to bluefieldresearch.com and sign up for the free trial. What's it hurt? It's it's a free trial. Just put in water values in the uh, promo box, and you can start getting access to a lot of great premium content that Bluefield Research has. Uh, so thanks to the Bluefield Research folks uh, for that uh, that offer right there. Um, and I don't, I don't, I don't benefit at all from that. So, so for those of you who are uh, uh, conspiracy theorists or skeptics and think that I'm going to get some sort of cut if you sign up or anything like that, no, I don't get, a, I don't get a dime from that. So, uh, it, it's just another um, uh, benefit to you, the listener, uh, for for tuning in and taking an interest in water. I should also mention that that uh, Bluefield Research promo, uh, it's only available for a limited time. I think you got to sign up uh, by the end of the year. And it's uh, it, the, the free trial is limited in duration, obviously. So it's not like you sign up now and you get uh, unlimited access uh, from here until eternity. So um, uh, sign up now, go out, and take advantage of all that free information. So thanks very much to the Bluefield folks for offering that. So with that, let's get to Todd Reeve, uh, who, again, does a fantastic job. So with that said, fasten your seatbelts, open the valves, and here we go. Well, Todd, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great, David. Really appreciate you having me on. Oh, yeah. Well, I, we really appreciate you taking some time out of your day to, to sit and speak with us. Uh, uh, to start off, though, could you could you give us a little about uh, who you are, your background, and, and how you ended up in the water space? Sure thing. Uh, so my name's Todd Reeve. I'm the CEO of, a bon- of the Bonneville Environmental Foundation. Um, it's a small uh, foundation located in Portland, Oregon. Um, and I've been working in the water space for a long time. I grew up in, in a very rainy part of the Pacific Northwest, plenty of water in backyards, um, creeks, streams, and, and a place where salmon and steelhead are really an iconic species that's embedded in the local fabric. So growing up around all those waterways, you know, it was easy to become interested in rivers and ultimately start thinking about them as threads that connect different states, different counties, different jurisdictions. Um, and over the years, I did many, many projects related to habitat, fish and wildlife, snorkeling and wilderness screens, tracking fish, etc. And as I, I grew older and as I, I traveled and saw more things, I started to realize that much of the NGO work or the research work that I had done was really focused singularly on habitat and fish. And it became apparent to me that the water space is, is so much broader um, and started to become very interested in the stakes beyond just habitat and fish and the, the NGO or the environmental focus. Started thinking about you know water and its value to communities and to economies and to the environment and started engaging with corporations and different types of folks to think about ways to broaden awareness and broaden action that could maximize freshwater benefits for all sectors um, of society, whether it's business, whether it's rivers, um, whether it's communities. So that's just a little background on, on my trajectory in the water space. All right. That, well, that sounds great. And I think you've, you've kind of given, given a, a flavor of, of uh, what, I, what I think the answer to, your, to my next question is going to be, and that is kind of what's the mission of the Bonneville Environmental Foundation? ensure that our watersheds and our freshwater resources are valued and stewarded. 
Um, we're working to create a movement that will engage broad sectors of society in proactive strategies, actions, and initiatives that really can sustain those freshwater ecosystems and maximize the benefits of those water sources to people and the environment. So that's really kind of squarely where we've focused our work over the last 10 or 20 years in the water space. Yeah, and, and I assume that the same is true for your other programs, you know, kind of the similar, uh, similar uh, flight path for, for your mission. Exactly right. And I think what a couple of things that are unique about our work, um, we are really focused in a big way on the, the business sector, um, working with utilities, working with companies, working with businesses to engage those folks, which aren't typically engaged in, in the classic NGO or in the environmental focus of this work. Um, and so we've worked over the last 20 years to build relationships to really try and understand what the value proposition is for those sectors um, that are working to achieve water stewardship or sustainability, you know, often for different reasons that aren't related to habitat or fish and wildlife benefits. And so we see our role as really a leader in that space of trying to build this momentum around the private sector, engage those folks being a voice for water, um, providing resources and support for projects that can advance um, water stewardship on the ground. And so that's really a niche that we've carved out um, and that not many NGOs are working on. Yeah, great. Well, and, and can you talk a little about the geographic area where you're you're performing all these activities? Absolutely. Yeah, so BEF headquartered in the Pacific Northwest, and we certainly have a focus of activities in the Pacific Northwest. But over the last 10 years, we've really expanded our water work to be national in scope, and we have significant focused areas in the southwest, southeast, particularly in Georgia, in the Colorado Basin, a very significant focus and effort there, um, including a number of projects and partnerships in the Rio Grande Basin, but also um, in California. And we recently have secured several new partnerships um, where we're scoping opportunities and partnerships in the upper Midwest and the Mid-Atlantic. Um, so we're small. Um, and we're, we're working very hard to use our resources judiciously and find partnerships where we can really leverage positive outcomes in those areas. But each year we've added new states or new geographies where businesses or partners are interested in the kind of initiatives and tools that we're offering. And so we continue to expand the geography. Well, that, that feeds right into my next question. You know, what, what, are, what are those tools that you're offering? What are the, what are the scope of your services? services and it's in large part because corporations and the business community um, come at this work for a variety of different reasons and they operate across a broad spectrum of kind of opportunities to engage in this space and we started uh, probably almost 10 years ago with the concept of the water restoration certificate where we would partner with NGO groups provide funding to support projects that would generate verified um, volumetric benefits to rivers and streams. Much of this work was in the West and these were dewatered stream ecosystems. And so these projects would work collaboratively with partners on the ground to figure out ways to get more water in those streams, protect that water and enhance those flows. And through this water restoration certificate vehicle, um, which operated, continues to operate similar to carbon offsets, we would work with third party verifiers at an international registry um, and we would verify and report and attest that certain projects and investments that we made generated these volumetric benefits to stream or wetland or lake ecosystems. 
And in doing that, we would convert that into a certificate, essentially a currency and a reporting currency that we would then attempt to sell into the business sector and allow business partners to balance a portion of their water footprint, their use within their four walls um, with projects outside their four walls that restored water um, to depleted ecosystems. So the water restoration certificate was sort of our first venture into this corporate facing water work. And we've really seen that as a tool that allows for collective impact to occur where there might be dozens of small businesses, for example, or maybe even a few large businesses that are looking to achieve a positive freshwater impact um, in the West where um, stream flows are depleted, thousands of miles of streams um, are diverted, channeled, dams and flows are often not adequate to support water quality, wildlife, fish species, passage, recreation, etc. So the water restoration certificates um, was one of the first tools and that led to us also then developing a side of our program, working with larger corporations, partnering with them to develop custom projects. So custom environmental water stewardship projects on the ground. Many companies would come to us and they'd have a range of operations across the US and they would ask us to scope among dozens of NGOs the types of environmental water stewardship projects that they could support on the ground. And huh. so we began identifying different types of projects in different geographies and representing those to many larger corporations that had the resources or had the particular interest in a geography to fund a specific project that they might own or they might um, tell stories about or utilize in their sustainability reporting. So the custom project space continues to be a really big component of our work as many companies are looking at their own water use, um, water stress and geographies in which they operate and are interested in identifying projects they can support that will help achieve water stewardship outcomes on the ground. Um, in addition, we um, frequently support corporations in developing their strategies around environmental water stewardship work. So what are they gonna do outside the four walls of their operation to support these positive water outcomes in the environment or in source watersheds? Um, and a really big element of our work of late has been attempting to leverage the business voice. Um, to date, the business voice really hasn't been engaged in many of these water issues and water debates and it's incredibly powerful and it's largely lacking. Uh, we routinely hear from decision makers that they know what the right thing to do is around water management and water policy, but they really need to understand that the business voice also understands that. So we've been working with many of our business partners to help them tell their stories about how they're investing, how they're supporting environmental water stewardship projects and outcomes, and how those outcomes and balancing fresh water availability for rivers, communities, and business is critical. So that's a big part um, of what we've been working on as well. Yeah, that, that, that's a, I thought that was very interesting how, you, how you've, you've kind of done a lot of these projects. I'm very curious about uh, the market. How did you, what's the, what, did you create the market for these water restoration certificates you mentioned? I, I'm just kind of curious how that, how that, yeah. how that functions. Sometimes when people look at our work, they think, great, you know, we're going to run out and we're going to create a water restoration certificate right in our backyard stream over here and we're going to make that available. And, and so lots of ambition around this concept of creating um, a product and hoping that there's a market for it. 
And really what we've done that I think is unique and I'm most proud of is we've worked simultaneously on the demand side and on the market side. And, and while we've developed several products and tools that we hope corporations will you know, purchase and utilize, we've worked even harder to try and develop the demand side. So for seven to 10 years, we've been trying to get on panels, make presentations at every conceivable type of corporate sustainability, corporate marketing, corporate environmental forum to make the case that it isn't enough to just invest in water efficiency and conservation within the four walls of a business. As a society, we need to also be incorporating into our strategies work that's outside of the four walls, work that fundamentally can shore up um, the health of our watershed ecosystems. Um, and whether the objective is to make sure that water runs downhill into our cities to support industry, or it's to support fish and wildlife or recreation, or it's to support agricultural communities at the headwater, we've really worked hard for the last 10 years to continue to beat that drum. And everywhere that we conceivably can be, we can write articles, we can publish, we can talk about this. We've really tried to develop that demand side alongside the supply side. We've made a lot of progress, and even just uh, three weeks ago, Intel announced a new global water commitment um, to balance um, their water footprint globally, including many projects in the U.S. And so that's one piece of evidence, you know, showing that the corporate sector is increasingly adopting this sort of thinking, that investment in environmental water stewardship work outside of their four walls needs to be a part of that larger strategy. So I, I definitely would not call it a market at this point in time. Um, it's a labor of love, and the work to develop those relationships and that demand, you know, takes three, four, five years to get to the point that a company, you know, is ready to engage on this. But that's the game we're in, and, and we're incredibly proud of some of our accomplishments of both developing the demand side with the supply side. Right, and I, I think that uh, from from the corporation viewpoint or whoever's buying the the water restoration certificates, uh, what what kind of what kind of evidence are they looking for that you're actually doing good? I mean, you you had talked about um, the verified volumetric benefit is what I wrote down when you when you mentioned that. I, I mean, how how much proof and evidence are these are these companies looking for when you are um, uh, looking at 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 selling a water uh, restoration certificate. Right. So these companies really come at this for a, a whole range of different reasons. And you can certainly imagine if you're a, a big agricultural company, you may want to invest in these projects to support your supply chain and ensure that water is going to be available for your production and your business model. All the way over to another type of company that may be wanting to you know, brand around rivers, the health of rivers or fishing. And you can think of the craft brew industry on that side where a lot of those craft brewers are really affiliated with the notion of healthy rivers and streams and outdoor recreation. So the reason that these companies support this work is varied. And as a result, what they're looking for as verified outcomes is different. The, the volumetric outcome does appear to be a currency that runs throughout the spectrum, and it's not the best way to necessarily um, quantify environmental benefit or social benefit on the ground, but it fits really well within um, the framework that these companies use to report their sustainability work, and it allows them to have a target to balance the water that they use in their products or that their consumers use with a certain amount of water benefit that's achieved on the ground. So 
we've seen that um, as a common element of this work, but your, your specific question of what are they exactly looking for, you know, it depends. And we got into this work thinking it would really be about these environmental outcomes, um, water restored, um, fish restoration, you know, other ecological metrics. But the truth is that most of these companies are far more focused on the social side of the benefits. And so projects that can benefit agriculture, can support water security, um, can supply water more reliably to communities, can um, alleviate groundwater depletion. Those are things that increasingly um, we're seeing the companies be more and more interested in. Um, and so as we're working with partners across you know, dozens of different project types, we're utilizing different types of reporting mechanisms to tell those stories and help those companies understand what they're accomplishing on the ground and also be able to use their voices you know, to talk to their customers, their consumers, their partners, their regulators um, about what they're doing proactively in this space. Specifically on the volumetric side, um, we work with a range of third-party partners that review the projects, certify the projects, um, look at the chain of custody around reporting, and, and documents and then verify that a specific amount of water as a result of funding for the project was protected or enhanced or restored um, in a depleted ecosystem. Yeah, do you, do you have any thoughts on, on the, the kind of the tendency for the, the purchasers to move towards the social benefits rather than the ecological benefits? Is it, I guess, I guess in, in my mind it would be that, that the social benefits might be easier to you know, quote unquote prove up um, yeah, I, I, and this, it, it, that question really goes back to sort of my history of, of working in this space as well. Um, and I think the practical reality is these businesses, these companies, um, you know, their business model is contingent on having satisfied employees, on having viable communities that can buy their products, um, and having water supply that can support their you know, economic activity. And so when you think about the continuum of benefits, um, the, it, it's logical that the needle really points to the social side and the companies are far more interested in investing in projects and having stories around these social attributes than really hanging their hat on an environment, you know, an environmental outcome. And I, I think it's really logical when you step back a little bit and you look at the state of water in our society. Um, and, you know, just over the past couple of years, the, the very many issues from Flint, Michigan, um, to the toxic summer in Florida, to NASA um, data showing that groundwater depletion is, you know, far beyond what we had estimated. You know, the practical reality is that shoring up water supply for humans is going to be of critical importance. And so we really see the companies looking at that side of the equation in a big way and wanting to be sure that whatever they're investing in, and, and certainly hoping that it has environmental benefits alongside, but wanting to be sure that it also is shoring up the ability of these natural ecosystems to continue to provide water for human communities or industry or whatever it is. So that's kind of how I see that playing out. Okay. So, so also what – what impact does the kind of the location of the use versus the location of the restoration mm -hmm. play in, in the water restoration certificate program? Yeah, that's a brilliant question. Um, 
You know, it's really challenging, and the more that you understand water and where it comes from, the more complicated the answer to that question becomes. Um, so typically, all of our business partners strive to support projects, you know, generally upstream and within the watersheds that they operate. So that's a general principle of wanting to be sure that these projects have some local connection to their physical presence in a place. But you look at some some companies um, that that have interesting um, objectives in this space. I think Curry Green Mountain, um, a coffee company, set their objectives around um, balancing a water footprint associated with the water that their customers use in brewing their coffee. So that would be one example where all of a sudden operationally, you know, you're looking at a really different spectrum. You're looking at where your customers are. We've talked to some breweries, breweries that have a similar approach looking at where their major demographics use their product or use water in association with their product. So that's just a little bit of a backstory there. But then thinking about the complexity of our water use, just looking at Southern California, for example, where um, you know much or a majority of the water that Los Angeles and San Diego utilizes is from Northern California or the Colorado River Basin. And so that creates complexities when companies sit down and try and assess where they would like to achieve these local impacts. And if you're a, a Los Angeles operation, for example, you know, is a local impact in the San Gabriel or the LA Basin, or is it in Northern California, or is it in the headwaters of the Colorado and Colorado? And so those are, those are questions that we continue to grapple with. You know, what are best practices in that space when you look at the complexity of how water is used, managed, transported? You know, what becomes local and what becomes a material connection to the operations. So I can say simply, if you operate in a, you know, a, a relatively straightforward location where you have an upstream watershed and downstream use, it makes all the sense in the world to develop and identify and support a project within that watershed. But as it gets more complicated, um, I think those questions are really challenging. And another one, just on that point, is many of the companies we operate with have significant um, water use footprints internationally. And often they'll have a major headquarters in the United States where they use maybe 1% of their total corporate water um, and the vast majority of their water footprints in India or China. So just lots of, I think, complex issues that we'll continue to need to grapple with and discuss and consider you know, best practices. Yeah, so it sounds like it's going to be a case-by-case -case basis almost uh, in terms of what the, what the goals and the needs of that, that entity that's looking to – to buy a uh, water restoration certificate is, right? I think that's exactly right. And, and one of the things that we've encountered recently is, you know, it's become very competitive among these cities to attract new talent, right? Um, lots of cities in the West, lots of cities in the East becoming increasingly um, attractive places for startups and new companies and growth and expansion. And so often these companies are looking to burnish their environmental credentials and talk about the environments in which they operate and the amenities that exist to attract, attract, new, attract and retain new talent. And so in some cases, I think um, supporting projects that restore flows for recreation, fishing, water quality, um, et cetera, I think some of these companies are also looking at it as a quality of life element where it may not be tied to operations. They may be thinking about what will it take to protect, you know, the curb appeal of Colorado or Utah or Oregon and ensure that we've got this really incredible environment that will 
allow for employees to come and stay and work for these companies. So I, I think that's an interesting new component of the work, um, thinking about um, how to be competitive as a company and how to be competitive in a specific geography and how these companies use their resources and their brands to try and um, keep those rivers flowing and, and attractive to employees. Well, that's, that's really interesting. Have you, have you, so you've, you've done a lot of work with the, the companies, which, you know, they're a little different in that they can, they don't, they are, they, they may have investments in certain areas, but they're free to move around. Right. So have you, with that whole kind of, uh, the curb appeal aspect of the projects, have you, have you done work for governments in order to help them kind of maintain their curb appeal? agency agencies organizations working to um, support projects around water quality habitat etc um, and I think you're right in some cases that is tied to the general well-being or the curb appeal of a given state but um, I'll, have to, I'll have to think about that a little bit more that's an interesting perspective so let's kind of shift gears here and talk about some of the custom projects that you you'd mentioned earlier and you said you, you did a lot in the west you're starting to do some things in Georgia. Uh, what, what, what's kind of been the draw? How, how have, has uh, Bonneville uh, Environmental Foundation kind of uh, uh, expanded its geographic scope? Because, and, and really the end game of my question here is, what are the differences for the custom projects in the West versus the East? Or is, is there a difference? Yeah, there, I think there are some very, very significant differences. And just to oversimplify, um, you know, in the West, there are many, many regions in which it's just a scarcity, a lack of water. Um, as you well know, you know, thousands of our streams are over-appropriated such that um, there's many, many more rights to withdraw water than those streams actually deliver. So we've got thousands of miles of, of dry streams and rivers, and those impact water quality, fish and wildlife, recreation, curb appeal of communities, etc. So across much of the West, our focus has really been on how do we um, work proactively with irrigators? How do we modernize irrigation systems? How can we shift use so that there's more water in the river while maintaining water delivery for streams? You know, generally speaking, that's a common theme. You know, whether it's an effluent project, whether it's um, converting to more efficient irrigation practices, whether it's crop switching, you know, all of those in certain case-by-case -case circumstances can generate positive social and environmental outcomes. You know, shifting to the east, it's not always the case, but generally speaking, um, water is more available. There certainly have been some significant droughts in the southeast, um, and there will continue to be, but generally speaking, um, water is more available. What we've seen as a, a major focus, which is no surprise, is really the nutrient runoff and just the growth um, in understanding around how impacted our freshwater ecosystems are in the east from <clears throat> runoff, whether it's stormwater runoff, agricultural runoff, et cetera. And I think some of the events over the last year really speak to some of the risk that that poses in terms of algal blooms and toxicity and affecting tourism in Florida, et cetera. And so we see a great emphasis on projects and project types that can ultimately enhance water quality in the east um, by reducing nutrient inputs or increasing clean water within those systems. 
Um, and, and certainly there are examples, say, in the, the lower Flint River Basin and the Apalachicola, um, where recent droughts in Georgia have really stressed water supply and their Supreme Court, interstate Supreme Court conflicts. And so we are working on projects there as well that are bringing um, innovation around technology um, to showcase new pathways for farmers to use less water, to use real-time soil moisture sensor um, with water delivery to crops. Um, but certainly there are, are differences and, and the upper Midwest, again, would be significant focus on nutrient input um, into lakes and how to reduce that. So we've really grown in our appreciation of the local conditions um, and how local these water issues are wherever you may go, state by state, county by county. And we've worked to identify what are the critical limiting factors of concern in these locations and what are the different project types that um, you know can help alleviate those issues or or sh um, showcase a path forward yeah yeah and and so when when the companies that you're partnering with um, are looking to do uh, one of these custom projects whether it's in the west or the east uh, you know do you, do you have any insight into how they're they're kind of justifying the investment they're making uh, you know, to the, to the shareholder, cause, cause really the corporations, they have a duty to their, to their shareholders. And so I'm just kind of curious how that, how that, you know, if you have any insight into how they approach that, that issue. Yeah. You know, at every panel, at every presentation, at every forum, that's the biggest question. You'll find committed, passionate, um, professionals that believe this is the right thing to do and want to advance this work, but they bump up against that obstacle when they get to the CFO. So that, that, this is, this is a, a critical piece of the conversation. And, and I think it depends a little bit on um, the business type. And so, for example, if you look at an agricultural company that is completely dependent on that water supply um, for the viability of their business, that's a no-brainer, right? There is our yeah. return on investment associated with water conservation, with um, reducing groundwater depletion, et cetera. And so you look at a large company agricultural supply company, and that, that makes sense. And those folks are already incorporating those numbers into their calculation. Sort of the next tier is a, a company that may or may not use a lot of water, let's say a, a beverage company, um, that probably the bulk of their water footprint is actually in their agricultural supply chain, but they're seen visibly as a large water user. So let's say a, a large international brew or a large international beverage company. Um, they they believe that they need to maintain a social license to operate, and they know that they will be seen as a big water user, whether or not they are. And so the ROI for those companies is typically run through this concept of getting ahead of this curve around water risk and investing in projects that ultimately will burnish and support their social license to operate. So that's kind of the, the thinking that we see those companies do. Another sector, the tech sector, that I think increasingly is looking at this work, developing strategies, and, and moving to support this kind of work. I think that they also realize that um, there's significant water use associated with their operations. It's typically under the radar. It's not like a beverage company, but they want to get ahead of it, and they want to be proactive. And so, again, I've seen that as an argument um, for tech companies to be leaders in this space, to use their IT um, capacity and their resources to be seen as playing a proactive role. 
You know, beyond that, there's a whole range of different um, ways that folks try and justify this. And that's often where the social side of it comes in. If you have a water project that has very strong social benefits, um, often it can get run through kind of a CSR side of a, a company and the appreciation will be around the commitment to social benefits in a community where they operate. Um, but we've got a long way to go and you're right that that is a significant impediment and there needs to be real um, return on investment cases that are made and understood by these companies. And where I think the, the greatest um, progress is being made is in some of these crises that have occurred. Droughts in the West, lead in drinking water, toxic algal blooms. That's where some of these companies are waking up and they're saying, wow, we actually have a real risk to our well-being in this community. And it may not be associated with water that is in our supply chain or that feeds our plant. It's in the general well-being of sort of the community water ecosystem within that we operate in. And so that's really the biggest difference over the past couple of years is water's moved up on the radar screens of these companies such that their analyses are saying, it probably would be very unwise to just stick our head in the sand and ignore the fact that, you know, all of these water issues are arising and, you know, we could wake up 10 or 20 years from now and not have a viable community or not have employees that are able to live and work here. So that's how I'm seeing that argument sort of develop. Yeah, I think that latter point you make is, is really going to uh, take on even more prominence as, as more data comes out um, and, and, you know, people get, you know, we get better at modeling this type of thing and stuff like that. And the other thing I think that you, you said was really interesting that I, I, I really hadn't thought about was kind of the major beverage um, company that may not be a big water user in and of itself, but it's, it's major water footprint is in its supply chain. And I, I, th I think that distinction is really important because, uh, you know, in a lot of the literature, when you read it out, you just, you, you read, um, you know, such and such is a big water user in the beverage space. And the article just assumes uh, that the company is vertically integrated and has control over everything, direct control over everything that it, that goes into its product. And so I, I thought that was a really interesting, interesting point you, uh, you made there. Um, well, Todd, you know, you've been, you've been great. Uh, I have learned, I've learned a tremendous amount about the Bonneville Environmental Foundation and just about uh, the, the water area in general in terms of what you're, the work you're doing. So I want to thank you very much for coming on. You've been, again, fantastic. And, and uh, have, have I failed to ask anything that you think is kind of important or do you have a kind of a, a parting message to anyone? were great and I'm incredibly <laughs> appreciative of the, the chance to, to speak with you today. Um, you know, the only thing I would just say is, is this is it's going to be a long haul and all of these pieces of the puzzle, you know, we and others are working to, to put together and continue to chip away at creating this movement. And I think there's been tremendous progress over the last 10 years. And, and I think the more ways that we all can think about how as individuals or as businesses or as companies we can contribute to integrated solutions. You know, I think that's the path that we're on and it's not going to happen overnight, but I'm, I'm just excited to be a part of it um, and appreciate the chance to speak with you. If anyone's interested, we have a, a website, businessforwater.org, um, B-U-S-I-N-E-S-S-F-O-R, 
W-A-T-E-R.org. And, and that represents a lot of the work, a lot of our corporate partners, has a whole portfolio of projects. So, so a lot more in, uh, specific information about partners, projects, all of that can be found there. And just wanted to share that. Oh, awesome. Awesome. And we'll put that on the show notes. So that'll, uh, so, you know, for, for folks that, that may be driving or running or whatever, when they're listening, we'll put it, just go to the watervalues.com and we'll, we'll have it on the show notes for you. So, uh, again, Todd, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. And, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much, David. Take care. Thank you. You too. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Todd Reeve. I thought he was, he was terrific. He was uh, very well-spoken, and he did a great job explaining, I think, in pretty good detail, a lot of the different elements about what he sees and what he deals with and how companies look at investing and, and you know, the, the various frameworks that companies analyze a water project in and whether or not to uh, invest in it. And I, I thought one of the most interesting thing was uh, uh, how companies really look at the social value more than they, than they do the environmental outcome. Uh, just because that's easier uh, for them to to justify for the bottom line. And so I, I thought that was one of the most interesting pieces of all this. So uh, tell me what you thought liked about the podcast. Uh, go to thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 114. That's thewatervalues.com slash pod forward slash pod 114. And you can leave a comment on the show notes or you can email me at david at the water values. You can also tweet at me. Uh, at my Twitter handle, which is at DTM1993, and you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values. And please do me a favor. Please rate and review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, uh, or any other podcast directory you, you listen to. You know that you know by now that I, I read the uh, ratings and reviews on the podcast, so get yourself a little free pub. Why not? Also, when you do that, it's a great way to help others find out about the podcast and you can sign up for the water values newsletter. It's only issued twice a month on the dates that we uh, issue a podcast. So um, please consider doing that. Uh, you can do that at the in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the water values podcast in mind. As you go about your daily business, water is our most valuable resource. So please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. Information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.